is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So it is a simile. It doesn't mean it should be taken literal. That's exactly what Moses wrote. But if it is taken literal, then this indicates 7,000 years. And this is what they started to believe. Now, something interesting happens here. On the fourth day and on the sixth day, those two words there are not translated in the English Bible. So this is the Aleph and the Tuf, which is the first and the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So in the original writing style, this is what it would have looked like. The Aleph is the ox and the Tuf is a marker. If a farmer was plowing a field and he wanted to plow a straight line, he would walk directly behind this ox. He would get a marker on the other end of the field and he would look through the horns of the ox towards that, which means he's now focusing on his end goal. He's walking directly to his end goal. This is a representation of the Messiah. This is Jesus. Five times in the Bible, God says, this is in Isaiah 41 verse 4, Revelation 1 verse 8, Revelation 1 verse 11, Revelation 21 verse 3, Revelation 22 verse 6. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which is the Greek first and last letter. And he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. So he makes a point. Four times in the Revelation, he plays off the beginning and the end, first and last. So he's indicating that it's him. So the Hebrews knew that the elephant tough must represent the Messiah. It must represent their Savior. And I'll come to how they come to this conclusion. What they see is that he appears on the fourth day, or otherwise put on the four thousands here. When did Jesus come to earth? On the four thousandth year. So there's some truth in that. So Barashith Bara, in the beginning created Elohim as God, Et, not translated, Hashemayim, heavens, Viet, the Vav is translated, and Viet, Haeretz, earth. So, Jesus came in the 4,000th year, he went to heaven, he's coming back on the 6,000th year, to earth, for the Sabbath, for the 1,000th year. This is according to the Jews, this is just a simile, um, please, this is not predictive, this is how I'm explaining how they understood it. Clear? Yeah. Nobody's going to go out here and say, Andre said, <laughs> because Andre said, no, don't say that. In any case, we don't know when the 6,000 year is here. The Hebrew calendar right now says, as from the 19th of September was the Rosh Hashanah, uh, first new year. So it's the year 5,781, which seems like there's a lot of time left. However, they also say that they know that they're not accurate, but they don't know by how much. So the calculations has been that they're either off by 213 years, which means we have about four years, give and take five years, before the 6,000th year, or they're off by 239 years, which means 6,000 years come and gone. So they don't know. They would probably err for the later one to say it's still in the future. Or they may say, no, it's far in the future. We don't know, and we're not going to make predictions, and we leave it at that. So what we can see from this is they had predicted there's something to do with God coming, or the Messiah, or a Savior coming. And this they got out of the, the original text. Now, if we read Zechariah 14, verse 9, he's talking about a last day, a final day. He says, the Lord will be king over all the land. In that day, the Lord shall be one, and his name one. just want to point out something. Twice the word one occurs. It is not the cardinal number one. In other words, it's not the one. It's not talking about one. One there, there's two Hebrew words that are translated one. Ashtay is this one. Echat 
is that one. Echad is unity. So he says, in that day, the Lord shall be a singular unity. And his name, talking about his character, shall be unity. So that's why I come to this, to say, my calling is unity. Because the character of God is unity. If we look at unity, if my calling, if my purpose in life is unity, then I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength. I will love my labor as I love myself because my calling is unity. So there's going to come a day when he will be king over all the earth and he will be king of unity. So that being said, what the scribes noticed was mankind did sin. So they have the record. They know that man is a fallen man. What was the original sin? In Genesis 2 verse 17, God says, you can eat, but of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat. But the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Now the question is this. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, did they die that day? I would say yes. Because one day is like a thousand years. They lived till 930, which is less than a day. So they did die in the first day that they ate of it. Genesis 3 verse 5, the serpent comes along. And he says, I tell you, the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will open and you will be like God. You will be like God. So he's presenting an alternative to them. He says, you're not going to die. Your eyes will open. You'll be like God. Now imagine Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the evening with God. Genesis 1 verse 26, 27 says, God created man in his image and in his likeness to have dominion over all of the world. And so he created man in his image. He does not say likeness. He does not confirm likeness in Genesis 1, but he does confirm it in Genesis 5 verse 1. He says, in his likeness that God created him. So basically, what man needed in order to do the dominion part, in order to subdue everything, in order to rule over this world, everything that he needed, God had already created him with the ability to do it. So there was nothing needed. However, he was from dust. He was fleshly. And I'm sure they noticed that when God comes to visit him, there is some similarities between them and God that's not the same. There's something that God is different from them. And I'm sure they could have seen this sameness is not 100% pulled through. So they have the character of God. They have his image. And we can go into that on another day, but it comes down when God breathed in the, the mold that he had created. The Hebrew basically says, that he placed a representation of himself inside the man. And that is the image. That is the image that we bear of God, is what he placed in man. So we have his image. We have his likeness in terms of his character, that we know how to think for ourselves. We know how to, we can do all of these things. So the first sin that man committed, in my opinion, so this you can go and say, Andre said this, because this is not necessarily this, supported by everybody, but this is what Andre says. The sin that man committed was that he wanted to be equal with God. This is my opinion. This is what he grasped. Now, we can have a look at Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7, and we see that Paul now writes, and this is his revelation. Now, remember, Paul did not know Jesus to the flesh, but in the period after he had been called, he had revelation upon revelation. So, in Philippians 2 verse 6, he basically says that Jesus was in the form of God. Now, that Greek word form is morphe. Biology students will know the word morphe from metamorphosis. So, the caterpillar goes into a cocoon and metamorphosis takes place and it comes out a butterfly. So that is the change that happens. So that is the changing, the appearance gets changed. So Jesus is in the form of God. Now you can read, and I read more than 20 translations, and I read a lot of commentaries on this, and I read it in the Greek, and I reread it in the Greek, and 
I'll tell you what my interpretation of this is. That Jesus was in the form of God, yet he did not seize or grab hold of this sameness with God. But he became a servant. He became like man. He let go of that sameness with God. He let go of it because as a fleshly man, he had all the authority and all the ability that he was sent to do, and that was to come and save man. So everything that he needed to be the Savior was possible in a human fleshly body. He did not have to be a supernatural being to save us. So he did not grab or seize the sameness with God, what Adam and Eve did. He let go of it. He became like us. He let go of it. He became like us. Now, the scribes say this. When they read the story and they read about the sin of mankind and they read about the fall of men, Genesis 2 verse 4, we read, and this is the generation, or these are the generation of heaven and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So that word, generations. So this word, toldoth. Toldoth. This means generations. So what they noticed, there's two valves. Now when they keep on reading the scripture, they find 39 times that toldoth is mentioned. Every other time, it lacks one of the vavs or all of them. So the vavs went missing. And then one scripture comes up, and in that verse, it again has the two vavs. So they came to the conclusion that after this man sinned, one vav went missing or both went missing. When they find Toldoth, the generations, again spelled with both vavs, they said, this indicates the Messiah came. The Messiah came at that stage. Ruth 4 verse 18. And let's see, when did the Messiah come? These are the descendants of Perez. Descendants, two vavs. So they said, Perez is the forefather. He's the ancestor of the Messiah. So they came up with this idiom and they said, Messiah ben Perez. Messiah, the son of Perez. So this is the prediction that they came, and they found it from a spelling mistake, a deliberate spelling mistake, God-inspired spelling mistake. So you can see that some symbolism in the Bible we can trust. Other symbolism, I think this is shaky waters. I personally would not go there, but I will go there. You'll find out why. Now, who was Perez? Genesis 38 tells us the story. Judah, let me write, have you guys ever seen the name of God that is not pronounceable? Exactly, exactly. So it's yud hay vav hay. If I had to put in, so it's pronounced, some pronounce it Yahweh, some pronounce it Jehovah. But that's the name of God. So here is the fourth son of Jacob, fourth son of Jacob, the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it starts Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. So we have a Dalet. This is what the Dalet looks like. The Dalet looks like that. It's that letter there. Now look at this. The fourth son, you recognize this name? It's God's name. The fourth letter is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He's the fourth son of Jacob. You see the symbolism? This is Yehuda or Judah, which we have shortened to say Jew. So that carries the name of God in it. So Judah has a son, Er. So Er was a wicked boy, and he dies but he's married to Tamar. He dies without children. Judah then gives Tamar to his second son, Onan. Onan knows that Er was a wicked one. Onan knows, if I father children with Tamar, 
those would be heirs' children, and that firstborn must get a double portion of my, of mine. And he says, he's a wicked boy, I'm not going to give it to him. Interesting, if you read Ur's name backward, it spells ra'ah, which means evil. Another symbolism. So, Onan spills his seed on the ground every time, and God says, that's wrong, and he lets him die. Now, fortunately, Judah has another son, Selah, but now he's considering that perhaps Tamar is cursed. It starts to look like a pattern, and he's not going to take this chance, so he says, no, Selah is too young. He cannot give Selah into marriage. So, in progress of time, Judah's own wife, Shu, she dies. So, to console himself, he goes with a friend of his, the Adulamite, Chirech, the Adulamite. He goes up north to sharing of the sheep to console himself. Tamar hears this. And she then takes off her widow clothing and she puts on other clothing and she goes and sits at the gates of the city, Timnath, if I remember correctly. And there she waits for him to return. Now Tamar, her name means palm tree, which means righteous. So she's a righteous person. Now what she's about to do is deceiving Judah. She's about to deceive, but why she's going to do it? This is what touched me this morning. The Holy Spirit dropped it into my heart. He said she had such a desire to be part of the family. She had such a desire to have an offspring for God's children because they knew Abram was called because they already had the text. They already knew that Abram was called. So they had the oral tradition saying that Abram was called and his seed, and then Isaac was called and his seed, and the blessings have been pronounced. Now Judah, being the fourth one, is actually, he's got the first birthright because of what the other three older boys had done wrong. So she's righteous, but she's doing something a bit deceitful. Now she sits there and she waits. And when Judah comes back, he sees her. He takes note of her. She was a hot mama. He takes note of her. And he now negotiates with her. What are your rights, my dear? And she said, a little kit goat is what I want. She probably saw he didn't have one in his back pocket. She agrees that she will take a pledge. Now this, this is very good. This is extremely good. She takes a pledge. Now, the deed is done, and she takes the pledge. What does she ask for as a pledge? She said, give me your signet ring. Which is his wedding ring? That is his wedding ring. So even though his wife had died, he was still wearing his wedding ring. So she said, give me your wedding ring. What is that a sign of? Marriage. She's asking to marry him. Give me your bracelet. The bracelet was a leather strap, quite often with silk and jewels decorated. The signet ring wasn't a ring to be worn on the finger. It was like a big bead that was carved out. So it would be, I mean, women wear it all the time. One of these little big beads around the neck, and the string goes right through it. So that is what the signet ring would have looked like. So this string that actually runs through it, this is the bracelet that she asked for. But this bracelet being highly decorated indicated his family heritage, his family line, his position in the family. So basically she said, I want to marry you and I want to be part of your family. And then she said, and give me your staff. So on his staff was carved out the names of his ancestors. The staff was a sign of his authority. So she said, I want to marry you, I want to be part of your family, and I want your authority. The Hebrew says, Tamar was the daughter-in-law. The Hebrew word is kala. I'm just going to write it like this. So the Hebrew word kala has two meanings. Daughter-in-law or bride. So she was 
his daughter-in-law, but also his bride. Three months later, he hears that she's pregnant. Okay, he had sent his friend, the Adulamite, with the kid goat to say, go and get back my trinkets, you know, every evidence that I've done this deed, bring it back to me. When he goes there, and this this morning the Holy Spirit dropped it into me, he asked the men there, where's the harlot? Where's the harlot? But the Hebrew word for harlot is Kodesha. Kodesha means the holy one. Where's the holy one? Where's the righteous one? And they said, there's no one like that here. Because her heart, she was righteous. She had such a desire to fulfill God's promise. In her righteousness, she asked for a pledge. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22 and Ephesians 1 verse 44 says, You have this pledge, the Holy Spirit. God has given us this pledge. He's given us the pledge, the Holy Spirit. He's married us with the bride. And you know what? In Zechariah 11 verse 10 to 14, God was already at that stage married to Israel. Zechariah 11 verse 10 to 14 is actually a prophetic word to the destruction of Israel. You can go and read it. You can go and read the first verses. It talks about the burning of the temple. Just go back to verse 1, I think. I think it is verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire might devour your cedars. That temple had a big door. It had such big doors that it took 20 men to open those doors. The story goes that after Jesus died, those doors opened all by themselves. Every day they would open. They were obeying Zechariah's call. He says, open your doors that the fires might devour your cedars. O fir tree, cypress, for the cedars have fallen because thy lofty trees are laid to waste. You oaks of Bashan. Go and read when Solomon built the temple. Where did he get the wood from? He got it from Bashan. He got it from Lebanon. So let's go to Zechariah 11 verse 10. So this scripture has to be placed. We have to place it in daytime, 70 AD. This is when the fulfillment comes in. Look at what God says to Israel. He said, and I took my staff, beauty of grace, and I broke it to pieces. Verse 14. So he took the beauty that he's talking about there is his signet ring. And he said, and I broke to piece my other stuff, bands, the leather strap. I broke the leather strap. So he destroyed his stuff. He destroyed everything that he gave to Israel. He'd broken it. And now he says, now you have my pledge. He's speaking to us. So he divorced them. Right there, he divorced Israel. Israel is no longer the chosen people because he divorced them. Right there, he divorced them. Because he broke that signet ring, the bracelet, and the staff. He destroyed it. So the question is now this. We've seen who Perez is. Well, we've seen the story about Judah and Tamar. And when she gave birth, the firstborn stuck his hand through. The midwife tied a scarlet thread around it. Then he pulled his hand back. And then Perez was born. And then she said, they gave him the name Perez because they said he kept on pushing forward until he could break through. So he's the breaker. He's the one that pushed through, and he's the breaker. And his brother, his twin brother, his name is Zara. Zara or Zera, depending on which translation, but that's his name, Zara. Now, let's pick up the story. How does it tie in with the Messiah? Matthew 1 verse 1. I'm not going to let us read verbatim the whole one through, but Matthew 1 verse 1 starts off with, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. And if we have to start here at the bottom, Abram, and we work our way up to David, Matthew concludes his whole story in verse 17, and he says, so there was 14 generations, Abram to David. 
14 generations, David to Jehoniah when they went into exile. 14 generations from Jehoniah, the name David, the numerical value of his name is 14. So there's 14, 14, 14 repeatedly coming up. I'm not going to go into the symbolism of that. But the cycle of the moon is approximately 28 days. From new moon, which is dark, starting here, till full moon, 14, 14 days. So from no light to maximum light, 14 days. Then, from David to Jehoniah, when they were taken in captivity, darkness again. Complete darkness. From Jehoniah till Jesus, full. Okay. So, here's the clincher. Toldoth. From first being spelled with two vavs until again being spelled with two vavs. 28 times. 14. 14. Symbolism, galore. Now let's read the genealogy of Jesus. Abram begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah. Judah begat Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Now, please note, he's calling the bloodline of Jesus. Zerah has nothing to do with it. But he puts him there. Let's continue. Next verse, just for interest's sake, Aminadab was the father-in-law of Aaron. Okay, just to place him in the history that you know where he fits in. So Nashon was the brother-in-law to Aaron. So let's continue. Now we are David. So David had the son Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. What does Uriah's name come in here? It's got nothing to do with the genealogy of Jesus. So we have Uriah. We have Zara or Zerah and Uriah. Zara's name means sunrise, morning. We've just broken the darkness. We have the faintest light on the horizon. That is what his name means. Uriah, Ur means light. Yah means Yahweh, the light of God. We have full brightness right at this point. But look at what the Holy Spirit hid away. We know who the mother of Solomon is, do we? Bathsheba. But the Holy Spirit decides, let's hide it. And Matthew does not write it. What does Bathsheba mean? Bath is daughter. Sheba is seven or seven oaths, seven seals. The daughter of seven seals. Do you remember Revelation 5? The book in the right hand of him, sealed with seven seals. And the Holy Spirit hides it for us. He does not add it there because he doesn't want to highlight this issue. He's going forward because he's hiding it. You see, it's, it's all hidden. It's all hidden. There's so much more to say about this. So, John 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If we read Genesis 1, verse 3. Okay, there it is. I'm the light of the world. If he who follows me will not be walking in the dark. We go back. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. Genesis 1. Uh, I don't know. Let's look at verse 4. Genesis 1 verse 4, and God said, let there be light. And God separated the light and the darkness. He separated the light and the darkness. There, verse 4. And Jesus says, I'm that light. I'm the light of the world. We read in Matthew 5 verse 4, Jesus says, you are now the light of the world. Now just go back to the genealogy, and don't go back there, I'm just saying you all in your minds, go back. If we count from Jehoniah to Jesus, we get 13 generations. We don't get 14. We are the 14th generation. Okay? 
Why do I say that? Because Matthew 5 verse 14 says, we are the light of the world. And then Jesus says in John 14 verse 12, he says, you see the works that I'm doing? Greater works will you do. So he says, I'm the light of the world. You see my light? Don't just duplicate it. Be brighter. Be brighter because we need to come to full brightness. So that's why we're the 14th generation. Symbolism. It colors the whole picture. Technicolor. I can add some sound effects, but I'm not that good. Isaiah 9 verse 2 is basically recorded, and it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew 4 verse 16 says the same thing. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So the people saw this light coming. They saw this light. Now, let's go back to Philip. Philippus, remember Philippus 2 verse 5 to 7 when I said, Jesus, he had the form of God, yet he didn't feel like this is something you should seize? Philippus 3 verse 12 says, Not as though I have attained, the Greek word there is lambano, which means seized. Not as though I have seized it, or I am perfect, but I push. Who pushed? Perez. He pushed because he was breaking through. So what is Paul saying? I'm pushing that I may seize that for which Christ has seized me. Remember this. I'm pushing through to see if I can seize that for which Christ has seized me. Do we have an idea of what this is, this seizing? What is he trying to seize? What is this form that he's trying to seize? There's three scripture references. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 13. Mark 9, verse 2 to 13. Luke 9, verse 28 to 36. And they all start with exactly the same word. Would you put up Matthew 17, verse 1, just to demonstrate? And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Okay. We know what's going to happen on this mountain. Transfiguration. Why did he take Peter, James, and John with him? Symbolism. Peter. What does his name mean? Stone. Rock could be a translation. More accurate, stone or pebble. Stone. James. The Hebrew name is Jacob. Supplanter. He's a supplanter. John. What does John mean? Yohana. Yo is Yahweh. Hana, grace. God is gracious. Read it backwards. And he took with him, so we start with John. God is gracious. He's supplanting the law, the rocks. So he took them up onto the mountain, and a cloud came down. And the Bible says the cloud covered them. But then the Bible says, and they entered the cloud. Did they go up? No. They stood on the mountain. But they entered the cloud. So they were standing on earth, the cloud covered them, and that's how they entered the cloud, by standing on earth. They entered the cloud. So after the vision was over, they heard a voice saying, this is my beloved son, hear he him, because God's grace supplants the law. Okay. God's grace supplants the law. But what they saw was Jesus' body being transformed. They saw the light coming from it. So they knew something. They had experienced something. They saw something happen. So Jesus, when John the Baptist was put in prison, immediately thereafter, Jesus started his ministry. And you know what? There's so much symbolism. I actually wanted to introduce that as well. But there's so much symbolism. It's unbelievable. You have to read between the lines and count the actual days, and you'll see on what day he started, and you'll see on what day was the wedding. It just so happens that the wedding took place on the seventh day, but we leave it there. We leave it there. That's the seventh day from when he started his ministry. Now, 
Jesus then speaks in Matthew 11, verse 12. And he says, from John until now, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus started preaching. In Matthew 4, it says that from that moment that he heard, he started preaching the kingdom of heaven. So now, a few chapters later, he says, from John until now, the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violence. The King James says, suffer violence, and the violent take it by force. So that very first violent is the Greek word biatsai. 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 And then the violent that takes it is biatsai. Now, we have an English word, well, a root word, bio. Bio in Greek is bia, B-I-A. Bia indicates a vital force. It indicates absolutely no aggression. There's a vital force. It's a force that is required. So bio, biosphere, anything to do with bio indicates what is necessary to sustain life. So we are looking at a vital force that is required to sustain life. This is what we are looking at. So if I had to look at this and that, in the concordance, they all say that there's a force or the one who is applying the force. If I go and I read this verse in Hebrew, a name pops up again, and we see Poretz, Poretzim, Perez, Perezim. There's a breaker, and there are breakers, plural. So there's one word, the taking by force, which is those who believe in rapture will find this a very common word, harpatsu. Have you heard that word before? Harpatsu. It is the word that is commonly said, but there is no word like rapture in the Bible, but we have the word harpatsu. So harpatsu is the thing taking by force. And I'll get to that. I'll explain to you there. So Micah 2, verse 12 and 13, prophesied actually to this verse, to Matthew 11, verse 12. And he says, the breaker, verse 13, the breaker, which is Perez, is come up before them. They have broken up, that is Perez, and have passed through the gate. Who's the gate? Jesus says, no one can come into the fold but through me. He's the gate. And have gone out by it, and their king shall pass before him, and the Lord on the head of him. Um, John Kuhnenberger's NIV interlinear translation says that, and they will pass through him, their king, and he has gone out ahead of them. So we will pass through him. So in ancient times, a sheepfold was quite often made out of thorn shrubs, just hooked together to make an enclosure, and the shepherd would sleep in the opening. In the morning, he would get up and he would walk out, and he would call his sheep by name, and his sheep would come running out of the sheepfold. Now, typical sheep, they don't go single fold. They go side by side, but the opening was just big enough for the shepherd. So as they go out side by side, they break open the sheepfold, which means now it's easy for two to go side by side. So a third one joins them and breaks it open further. So now it's easier for three to go through. You know, if we look at the revivals that have come in this recent ages, how difficult was it to get filled with the Holy Spirit until the breakthrough in the beginning of the century, of last century? Then all of a sudden, it is so easy because they have pushed through. They have pushed and pushed and pushed, and they broke through for us. The same with healing. Somebody had broken through. So Paul is writing, and he says, I'm pushing forward. I'm trying to attain this thing. I'm trying to, to reach and find this something. So let's go and have a look at this troubling word, harpatsu. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. So we see that he says, Then we which are alive 
and remain. And remain typically means we're not going anywhere. Shall be caught up, caught up is the harpatsu, together with them in the clouds, not will be caught up in the clouds. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that direction. It means those who are in the clouds. Because the previous verse was talking about a trumpet that was sounding, and then Jesus comes with the clouds. And then we, which are alive and remain, we will be caught up with those ones who are in the cloud. Those are the dead, the dead that have risen. I think that's the Anglican church, but I'm not sure. Um, to meet the Lord in the air. That's a joke. It's a joke. It could be the AFM. I'm not sure about that. So the dead that are coming on the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. So if you have a strong concordance, who's seen a strong concordance? Anybody familiar with the strong concordance? So the strong concordance, you go and look at caught up, it'll point to the word harpatsu. The problem with that is that's the root of the word. And Greek is a complex language. It's similar to Afrikaans. We like to put a lot of words together and make one word. And it's not that uncommon in English, but the English tend to be very casual about it, and they took two words, and that's it. No more than that. But we add and add and add. So I can tell you that I have a blue cloth lunchbox cooler bag, and it's one word, but the root of it is a bag. So you go and look in the Strong's Concordance, and it'll tell you I'm talking about a bag. But it does not tell you that it's blue, that it's cloth, and that it's a cooler. It does not add that. You have to read the original text. So the original text for caught up is harpats, harpa gesometha. So gesometha, guess what that means? Gesometha, gay, is where we get geography, geology, everything to do with earth. Harp, the root harp means to seize, to take possession for yourself, to hold on to something, this is yours. So harp, gay, something on the earth. Esomai is the future tense of a word that gave me goosebumps when I saw it the first time. Amy. So Amy, what does Amy mean? I am. I exist. What is the future tense of I am? I exist. I shall be. I will be. So, okay, so Mitha means on earth I will be. Does it talk anything about direction, movement back and forth? No, it talks about what I'm going to experience on earth in the future tense. What will happen to me on earth in the future? Harpa, I will be seized. I will be grabbed hold of. Or I can, if it's reflexive, and you can go and check in the Strong's. There's one little word, autos, which is not translated. It is reflexive. Reflexive means for myself. I will be seizing on earth in the future something for myself. I will be seizing. Okay, let's leave it there. Andre, you're lying. We do not agree with you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Let's look at it from a different point of view. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Paul talks about babies. He says, I show you a ministry. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's not the changing of babies, is it? No, nappies. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So twice, verse 51 and verse 52 he talks about, we will all be changed. When, Paul? Where, Paul? How, Paul? Let's look at the Greek. So the Greek word, ala kesomea. Ala kesometha. Have we not dealt with kesometha before? So what is the root word ala? It is alasa. Alaso means to make different. Kesometha, it is something that will happen to me in the future, while I'm on earth. Something, I'm going to be made different in the future, while I'm on earth. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 says, I'm going to see something in the future, while I'm on earth. Even if we take this, and we say, 
He went to heaven, and he comes back to earth. Okay? I don't see heaven there anymore. But I'm telling you, this is risky because this is not really using the word to confirm the word. So what if I'm wrong? 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we sons of God. It is not clear yet what we shall be when he shall appear, but we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like him when he appears again. So, but John says, it's still not clear to me, but I can tell you this, we'll be like him. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies like unto his glorious body. Agreed? Yeah. Romans 8 verse 29. For whom he did foreknown, he also did predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay. So it seems like Paul had this idea. And we're just using Paul to quote Paul, to quote Paul. So what do we see in Psalm 17 verse 15? As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I will awake with thy likeness. Okay. So, is there any direction, any movement, any going away? Proverbs 10 verse 30 says, The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit earth. Proverbs 11 verse 31 says, Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth. Psalm 37 verse 9 says, Evildoers are cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 11 says, The meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5 verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Revelation 3 verse 12 says, New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth. If there's any going somewhere, then it is the wicked. The wicked will be going somewhere. But let's leave it there. I'm preaching to the converted. I want to encourage you with this one. I want to come back to my calling is unity. So we go back to... Matthew 28, verse 10, and John 20, verse 17. Jesus rose up from the grave. This is the first day. Let me just add this. 14. Jesus was crucified on the 14th. He rose on the 17th. A lot of symbolism. Do yourself a favor. Google biblical symbolism of the number 17. It's amazing. The ark on the 17th day. Let me leave it there. So Jesus says, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go unto my disciples. No, that's not what he says. Go unto my brethren. You know what an intimate term that is? My brethren. And say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father. And I go to my God and your God. This is the origin of unity. He's saying to them, I've united us now. I've done it. I've given you the example of unity. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, He's not ashamed to be called our brothers. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, It behove him to be like us. So he made mankind. And then mankind tried to grab the sameness of God. And then God sent Jesus in the form of a human being to be our Savior. And now that He's been in our fleshly bodies, He's gone and He's prepared something for us. Now He says, I'm going to give you the sameness of God. This is what we're looking for. But until then, let us follow our calling of unity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because if he can call us brethren, 
then we can call each other brethren. And we can call every human being. One thing that I didn't mention here, and seeing that I'm over time by a half an hour, um, Jesus very often referred to himself as the Son of Man. The Hebrew term is Ben Adam. Paul picks up on this and he says, there was a first Adam and here's the last Adam. The symbolism of calling himself Ben Adam is hidden for us who read a translated work. Thank you. Father, I thank you that you always hear me when I pray. Father, thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, to teach us in all things. But Father, it all depends on the hunger that we have. If we do not hunger for your word, we will not eat it, we will not drink it, we will not breathe it. And therefore, right now, Father, I pray that you would stir up a new hunger, an emptiness inside ourselves, an understanding that we are nothing without you and that we need to be filled every day with more and more of you. So, Father, I pray that all of us would experience this hunger, this need, this desire, this outcry from the deepest waters inside of us that we need to be stirred by your word, that we need a new touch every day of your word. Father, that we would not have enough time to get through the day's work, but that we would rush to get to your word, that we would seek out, that we would buy out the opportunity to delve into your word. And Father, I know that you are quick to answer. You are quick to share. You are quick to give us. And you will not let the one who calls out in hunger, let them not be fed, let them not receive. So therefore, Father, I pray and I thank you that each and every one who has this hunger, this desire to seek revelation, to find revelation, to get insight into your word, that as they read, as they prepare themselves to read your word and study your word, that the Holy Spirit will guide them as to where you want them to start reading, what passage, what aspect of their life they need to address, and that you would guide them and fill that desire in them. But knowing you, God, I know that filling that desire will just create a bigger hunger, a bigger thirst for your word. But that's what we want, Lord. We want to never be satisfied with what we have. We want to be never satisfied with the knowledge that we've gained. But we want to have everything. We want to have all of you in these bodies. This is what we want. Overflow us, overfill us with more of you. Thank you, Father. Amen.